This week on the Nonprofit News Feed brought to you by Whole Whale, we are talking about some information that just came out about the census as well as continued coverage of how, in this case, oligarchs are running into problems as philanthropists in the United States. Nick, how is it going? It's going great, George. Happy to be here as always. I'll start us off with our first story. And this is one that we picked up from the New York Times. And the report is that the 2020 United States Census undercounted hard-to-reach communities and disproportionately undercounted Hispanic, Black, and Indigenous Americans. The count was affected, of course, not only by the logistical hurdle of counting during the height of the pandemic, which poses its own challenges, but also due to attempted political interference by the Trump administration. There was lots of controversy about attempts to end the census early, not count folks who are undocumented, lots of difficulties with the count there. However, experts note that while historically the census has failed in the past as well to undercount harder to reach communities and populations, this one continues that trend and shows that the lack of data there was potentially a little bit more severe than typical. And for nonprofits, the takeaway for this is that the census's aim is to count the communities that lots of nonprofits serve, which are vulnerable communities. And unfortunately, that undercount means that the political clout of those traditionally underserved communities may be diminished moving forward. Just a quote here, one of the... The folks interviewed here, a leading expert, census consultant, Terry Lowenthal, goes to say, overall, the results are less accurate than in 2010. The Bureau's estimates, the 2020 tally incorrectly counted 18.8 million residents, double counting some 5.2 million, wrongly including another 2 million and missing others entirely, even as it came extremely close to reaching accurate count of the overall population. All of those problems abound, but disproportionately, again, impacting the count as it relates to BIPOC, Native Americans, other underrepresented groups. It's infuriating because this only happens every 10 years. And we saw it happening. We talked about it as it was happening as a problem that would have downstream effects. And fast forward to the future, here we are. A great reporting, interesting to know, and asterisk as you are looking at any population data to, to keep that in mind. And I will say the census has got tremendous data, data dot census.gov if you want to go and dig in and look through it. And they call themselves out um, too in this as well. At least the, the error reporting is in fact there so you can see that. But again, this is how we draw, distribute federal funds and other uh, public resources that are distributed, including that limited to education, healthcare, and others. Frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. I think though this hones though the importance for nonprofits of contributing to civic engagement. Caring for those communities when it comes to the census involves helping folks fill out the census because it only benefits them. So just highlighting that nonprofits do have a role to play, especially as they're, they are often the first and only point of contact for vulnerable communities in the United States. All right, I can take us into our next story. This, of course, turns to the ongoing war in Ukraine, but on a slightly different angle, a philanthropy angle here. And this was fantastic analysis conducted by the Washington Post, which shows that Russian oligarchs gave millions to U.S. nonprofits, museums, 
and universities. And when we use the words Russian oligarchs, we're referring to Russia's wealthiest elite individuals who are very frequently accused of corruption and criminality, often have very close ties to Putin, enjoy favor from Putin's corrupt government. But a lot of these folks have given millions to U.S.-based philanthropic organizations and wealthy oligarchs close to the government um, have given money to organizations and museums like the Guggenheim Museum, universities like MIT, performance art spaces like the Kennedy Center, the Clinton Foundation for an international organization. And I think that this goes to show that I think this might be potentially a paradigm shift in how American philanthropic organizations, museums, universities, nonprofits, what have you, really consider foreign money. Uh, it's an open secret that tons of DC think tanks in particular are funded by foreign money. In this case, it happened to be a lot of cultural institutions, but this has real world implications. These are Putin aligned, wealthy, hyper wealthy Russians who are essentially buying influence within American culture. And a lot of these organizations now are in a really difficult spot where they are caught between funding sources and, at this point, international sanctions, because part of the effort to push back on Russian aggression from the economic sanction standpoint is targeted sanctions against these oligarchs. So I don't know. You're in a tough boat if a major source of your funding is now being targeted by an international sanctions regime. This week's sponsor, none other than Whole Whale, a digital agency helping social impact organizations build traffic and measure impact. However, they also have an amazing new tool, the Inclusivity Crawler, the inclusivity tool that helps you find language that may be offensive to some of your stakeholders and shareholders. It looks through issues of ethnicity, race, gender, health, wealth, religion, and a number of other isms, frankly, that maybe you didn't have in mind when you wrote that content last year, last two years, a decade ago. The inclusivity tool will go through a page or even your entire website if you need it and help you find language and replace that language with the kinds of words that will be welcoming. Inclusivitytool.com. Again, that's inclusivitytool.com. And now back to our show. Yeah, the quote here from a political science professor at George Washington University says that a lot of these philanthropic contributions were essentially used to help launder their reputations and integrate themselves socially and financially in the West. And that is uh, that is tough. I think you're, you hit the, the nail on the head with regard to the tough situation that arts organizations in particular that are not frequently on the most funded list are, are finding themselves in. And you know what, if, if you're talking and you're sitting at the Guggenheim being like, hey, do we want to close up shop for uh, a season of the year because we can't afford it? If Do we want to stop this or that ballet? If we want to stop our programs in this area because we want to make a, a political stance here? I, I don't think that type of embargo or that type of boycott is apples to apples with, say, Exxon running over and buying excess oil from Russia. You know what I would say? Cash the check and then simply politely say, in cashing this check, we're giving you no recognition whatsoever. You can do it anonymously. We're going to take that money and put it toward good impacts in the world and support artists. And frankly, let's just be honest. 
would I rather $100 million sit at the, like, the Kennedy Center or sit in a Russian oligarch yacht? Give it to the Kennedy Center. Don't give them credit. Be like, look, we'll take your money, but we're not giving you credit. Take the money and run it. Put it to good use. Be public about it. I, I think that's uh, hard if you're potentially looking at existential questions there, but I don't know. Yeah, George, I agree with you. I think, though, that this brings up and opportunities to talk about something else that requires nuance, and that is not demonizing Russian people as a whole. I think that when emotions are high, sometimes broad assumptions about a people, but it is very clear that this was a decision by the Russian government, Vladimir Putin in particular, to invade this country. And of course, he has his supporters, and those ardent supporters need to be contemned and there should be consequences. But it's important to recognize that this was not a decision made by the Russian people who no longer live in a democracy and that we should not be demonizing an entire population of a country that, quite frankly, is now because of this going to see has bleak economic outlook, outlooks. This Russia is not going to be a good place to live for the foreseeable future. And I think that we need to when talking about topics like this, recognize not all Russians are bad. I think that's really important. Let me give you another quick thought experiment here. Let's say your organization, this is a bizarre one, received pounds of cocaine as a random donation. Wow, it's weird. Would your first step be to give all the cocaine back saying we don't accept cocaine here? Or would it be to maybe call the police or to like seizure, censure it, to do something to that effect? That's like a weird thought experiment. This kind of comes up as well when people talk about what if someone sends us a whole bunch of cryptocurrency and they're from a disreputable actor, would you give it back to them so they can do something else nefarious with it or unsupported? Or would you channel it toward good? Or would you call up the FBI and be like, hey, I, I think that there are different avenues and it's important to just like think rationally rather than emotionally to, oh, we're going to get canceled on Twitter because because of this one particular paper trip. Absolutely. That's a great point. All right. Should I take us into the summary? Okay. Our first story in the summary is that the FBI sees massive fraud in groups food programs for needy children, as reported in the New York Times. This is a story we've actually touched on before, but it seems to have escalated now, getting lots of airtime in national press. And the gist of the story here is that multiple nonprofit groups, including Advanced Youth Athletic Development, as well as the larger umbrella organization based out of Minneapolis called Feeding Our Future, is being accused by the FBI of siphoning off millions of dollars in government money. Their offices were raided by the FBI, and this is turning into quite a sizable scandal within the nonprofit industry. It's just straight theft at this point. And I don't have too much more to add, but just really important that folks be vigilant and understand that being mindful of how money is moving and flowing is essential. And if something seems wrong, it's worth investigating. Yeah, the FBI, and quoting in this article overseen by Feeding Our Future, they group had received more than 65 million from federal food programs during the coronavirus pandemic. In one interview, one of these neighbors in an apartment, when they asked if they'd ever seen the 5,000 children that were claimed to have been supported there, I have never seen any kids going in there. It's 
outright fraud. It's being finally able to be investigated post-pandemic. And that's the sad truth of giving out unstructured money at scale with slow oversight. A percent will go to fraud. And unfortunately, it's dragging a bit of a nonprofit umbrella. Yeah, I hear that. We move on. We'll learn from this. And hopefully other local nonprofits don't feel too much of a blowback from the scandal. Our next story is from, and it is about America being the most generous country when it comes to global giving. According to Charities Aid Foundation's World Giving Index, which surveyed 1.3 million people in 125 countries, America was the most generous, both in terms of monetary donations, but also as, as it relates to volunteerism. Apparently, 72% of Americans help strangers and 42% of us volunteer. And of course, it goes into some more trends during the pandemic about spikes in donations in 2020 and 2021. The donations cut across lots of different demographic trends. It goes into fundraisers on social media, a lot of which we've covered here. But I think this brings up an interesting trend. And personally, I will add caution here. I think that we shouldn't feel comfortable with this because America has, while generous by the stats here, a lot of places where we can be more welcoming when it comes to asylum seekers, when it comes to refugees. Just this morning, I read in the BBC that UK household, 89,000 United Kingdom households have signed up to house Ukrainian refugees. 89,000. That is World War II level mobilization of refugee assistance. We should not feel comfortable with these numbers. As great as they are, there's a lot more we can do. George, what's your Are you saying, do you have, actually, I'll give you a chance. Can you go find how many U.S. households have signed up for refugees? And maybe it's different from proximity and access to direct Ukrainians fleeing the exact war zone, Ukrainians fleeing war zone. I'll give you a chance to go hunt around the internet, but I think, I think it's okay to every now and then celebrate, pat ourselves on the back for being uh, a, a generous nation. I think as much as that can get out there and we can position ourselves, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy that can also take hold. And we're up there. And at least in the edition here, the data show that 58% of Americans were giving. United Kingdom was at 54% in terms of the generosity index from the CAF World Giving Index. Americans do give. Traditionally, the overall giving rate in America tracks toward 2% of GDP. So I think there's one thing in total volume, but I think this is more potentially about participation, which it is, again, good to see. Absolutely. All right. I can move us into our next story. And George, this is a throwback to a different time in the world. This is a story from the New York Times style, which is fitting for this story. And it harkens back to George. We just celebrated 10 years of Coney 2012. Coney 2012 was a video made by a nonprofit called Invisible Children, which tried to use what was essentially a movie to drum up advocacy in to raise awareness about the brutal warlord, Joseph Coney. And unfortunately, the whole thing spiraled. The creator of this documentary had a, a mental breakdown. It turns out this nonprofit just wasn't using money very effectively. And 
the whole thing just devolved into a media spectacle. George, this is your our, your one and only chance on this podcast to tell us your thoughts about Coney 2012 and what we should all take from potentially the highest profile nonprofit advocacy public media relations disaster. Or maybe I framed that wrong. Do you have a, a spicy take about some other take? I think this was groundbreaking at the time. And it's important for, I think, younger people getting into the social impact sector to go back and dig into this as it evolved. There's one thing to look at it in hindsight versus living through it where it was revealed step by step at first being this tremendous viral movement moment where we were watching the power of video rapidly spread across you to shame and shame and identify an individual with a certain serious problems with regard to child slavery, soldiering in the, the region. And then watching this sort of unfold over time where, yes, more and more issues associated with uh, the organization were revealed and the founder. I don't need to dig into it too far there because it's, it's overall we learn elements that one oversimplification of a complex issue and distilling it down to that's the enemy of everything can run afoul. And also that, frankly, the messenger is part of the message, meaning that the organization must be pristine. The founder must be authentic and the overall impact of the Joseph Coney in, in Central Africa, frankly, it was terrible, but also lost the, the narrative thread when people then started digging into the organization, which confused the issue even further. So when we now look at how we use video to tell stories about other people and, and use that footage, I, I think it can be done with a lens of how are we uh, summarizing an issue that perhaps we are an outsider on. We can look at the power still, frankly, of a lot of elements of TikTok and storytelling, especially with regard to video and the power that it still had. And this was an interesting one to revisit, I think, 10 years later because it was so powerful in the moment. In many ways, I felt it was a wasted opportunity that I think it could have grown to something much more effective if it were managed in a better way. Absolutely. I agree. And to your hindsight is always 2020. We see how this plays out. But I think it, to your point, does offer a lot of really interesting lessons. And it was groundbreaking when it first came out and highlighted the power of social and video to create a cause. So that was just a couple of years after or one year after the Arab Spring. And it was it harkens back to a time when social it felt like social media really was driving real world social change in really profound ways. So a really interesting story in that perspective. Yeah, and by the way, Joseph Coney is oh, yeah. still at large, responsible, according to UNICEF, for abducting tens of thousands of children and enslave them for the purposes of becoming soldiers. So was it a success? Only in so much as to raise the profile of invisible children, but the impact wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair analysis. George, I went to our next story, and this is a really interesting one. And this again comes from Axios. And the title of this story is called Some Native Americans See Kinship with Ukraine. And it's really interesting and one that I wanted to highlight because it personally speaks to me. The big picture here is that tribes in the US and Canada are roundly condemning Russia's invasion. 
They've started relief funds, drives for food and clothing, educating folks about their own history and little known connections to Ukrainians. What's really interesting about this story is that U.S. and Canadian tribes, indigenous Native American tribes here in North America, find their history in somewhat similar to Ukraine. They have this share experience of trying to repel imperialist forces. And I, on this podcast, am, I, I am Native American. I identify as half Native American. My family is Cherokee. And I think that is a perspective that often gets lost in conversations, even about indigenous rights, is a lot of the focus of the indigenous rights movement is anti-imperialist and against colonization. And a lot of that, I think, Native American tribes identify in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And just as an aside, I see in the media opinion pieces criticizing NATO, particularly from the left for imperialist tendencies. And that kind of bothers me <laughs> because it's not accurate. These are people, Ukrainians are people with their own language, pushing back on Russian imperialism, which is exactly what this is. And it's really cool to see Native American tribes finding kinship with that narrative and stepping up to create bonds. And a lot of these tribes, they're not wealthy. They're not particularly wealthy communities with vast sums, but they're doing what they can to help people in what they see as a shared struggle against imperialism. So I wanted to call this out. I think it's really cool. This is the value of cross-cultural understanding. Like this is, it's just for, for people who just love understanding different cultures and seeing them interact with one another. It like, it almost brings tears to my eyes and is really, it's really cool. And Native American communities in the States also have strong ties with Ireland because they, these tribes took care of Irish refugees back during the potato famine in the 19th century. And it's just really tremendous to see this play out in real time. Yeah, just wanted to give my, my thoughts on this. I think a really cool story. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And you know, I think there's also a lot of shared identity in the idea that they were a group disproportionately that suffered from the idea of manifest destiny of imperialism. This idea that we're going to, with superior firepower and a simple divine identity, decide that we're going to displace an entire population, not too dissimilar to the way that it seems that Russia now believes the Soviet Union borders now still apply in their executing that despite local populations. And so I think it is, is powerful for Native Americans to be able to make a, a, a national statement in this way, to be seen and recognized and also to be in a place hopefully where they're able to, even though the wrongs of the past can't be undone, speak up as a voice of a reminder of a not so distant past when humanity did the same to That was so well put, George. Thank you for sharing. All right, we're gonna we're gonna go past the feel good story today. And I will say that a quote I left in the nonprofit newsfeed for you. A leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. Rosalind Carter. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate the work. See you next week. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. 
And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.